Welcome to Merrick's Experts, the podcast that provides analysis of current affairs in China. I would now like to invite the fellow panelists to the stage. It's Sandra He, Felix Lee, and Perry Link. Let me just take you on stage to join us for a panel discussion and give them a warm, ha a cooling hand of applause. Actually, <laughs> would be better. <laughs> I will again very briefly introduce uh, the panelists and then without further ado, proceed to a question. So get your mobile phones ready just as a pre-warning or pre-invitation, so to say. Um, we do have with us a distinguished uh, panel, uh, for sure very diverse uh, experts. Daniel Leza, you have already met. We do have with us, and that's also um, a special privilege, uh, Dr. Perry Link, who is a professor emeritus for East Asian Studies at Princeton University, and he is fortunate for us, now a fellow at the Center for Transcultural Studies at the University of Heidelberg. So he had uh, a short road to travel, actually, and uh, gladly took our invitation. And he's best known, I think, for his tireless effort to have an open heart, if I may say so, and eyes for important um, dissenting Chinese voices. And he translated many of them and edited the translations to help Western audiences to understand their message. And along with Andrew Nathan, he translated the Tiananmen Papers and also edited them who have been published in 2001, basically a lot of documents inside on how the Chinese leadership, the CCP, discussed and perceived um, the protest movement. He also translated the Charter 08, um, issued or initiated by Liu Xiaobo, uh, the um, uh, Nobel Prize carrier of peace. And he also translated actually an essay poetry collection uh, by Liu Xiaobo, and is also working on his biography. Um, so warm welcome, uh, Professor Dr. Perry Link. We also do have with us Professor Dr. Sandra Heep, since uh, 2018, a professor for economics and society of China at the Hochschule University of Bremen. And Sandra actually combines different intellectual perspective and also institutional knowledge on China. She's a trained philosopher and political scientist, but worked herself into economics and finance, where she also did her PhD. So she really can bring together various perspectives, and she not only knows the academic world, uh, which is of course good, but she also knows uh, the government. She worked for the Federal Ministry of Finance and also for a China-focused think tank at Berlin called Merricks. Warm welcome to Sandra Hebe also. <laughs> And we do have with us freshly returned from China, Felix Li, uh, a former China correspondent for the Tats and many other newspapers. He just returned from Beijing, have been posted there 
since 2012, covering China um, on a wide range of topics. And while he also didn't shy away from clear statements on the repressive political system, Felix always reminded myself personally, but I think many of us, that China is more than the CCP. So also warm welcome, cooling welcome to you, Felix, also. Now, before we venture into the panel discussion, it's audience time. Um, we do have an interactive element this evening, your chance to also shape, actually, the discussion a little bit. And I would like to invite those of you who have their mobile phones with them to visit www.menti.com. So the question is, and I say it in English because you see it in German, if the uh, violent suppression of the protest movement have been inevitable. Yes, no, or hard to say. Wow, this is a pretty interesting, I would say, result, but okay. You, you seem to believe the audience with, of course, a lot of China experts acting and uh, mature people who do work with China, you, you seem to believe that the repression, the bloody end, so to say, of this protest movement should have not been or was not inevitable, not, was not about to necessarily end this way. I think this is a pretty clear result. You can continue to vote for a couple of times, but I think this is pretty obvious. Perry Ling, I would like you to, I would like to invite you to comment on that. Does that surprise you and do you agree? I apologize for not speaking German. No need to apologize. Uh, We're an international capital here. No when worries. When I think <laughs> of this question, uh, I'm confused by the word inevitability. Like Sandra, I started as a philosopher and I wrestled with it for a year with whether human action was free will or determined and there's so many levels to this question that I, I don't know what to say, except I will, just for the sake of getting the discussion going, vote with the minority here, the one that said it's, it was determined, and I'm going to argue it this way. Human beings don't like to have autocratic, totalitarian governments over their heads. You can see this in a lot of places in history. Mao Zedong's dictatorship from especially the late 50s until he died in, the, in, in 1976 was one of the tightest, most rigid, invasive totalitarianisms we've seen. And people don't like that. They want out of it. They want something better. When he died, immediately the Gang of Four was blamed. Deng Xiaoping was the main character to take over then. And Deng had the problem of how to allow this discontent that was very widespread, this seeking of a better system, to coexist with his continuing to use the system in order to uh, maintain control because his own power depended on it. His first move, we saw from Daniel, is to uh, blame the so-called Gang of Four, who were his spouse and three other close confederates. They did all the evil. Mao Zedong didn't. That split is intellectually unsupportable, of course. 
but it was politically smart because it blamed someone but not Mao. I can still say that I'm inheriting Mao while denouncing everything else. Through the 80s, Deng's strategy was to stay in the background and put forward two very open-minded, well, comparatively open-minded reformist leaders, secretaries general of the Communist Party of China, Hui Elbang first and then following him, Zhao Ziyang, from 1978 through 1989. On the strategy that I don't know how to balance this repression versus allowing the people to speak up. And by the way, Deng Xiaoping is sometimes called the architect of reform. That's a very deceptive term. He didn't design it from the top and out of the benevolence of his heart decide we should have a more open system. Everything he did in reform was from push from the bottom, from farmers to workers to intellectuals. So that puzzle of how to maintain balance was there risking going too far, he gave to his two deputies, Hu Bang and Zhao Ziyang. If something went wrong, he could say, I didn't do it, and back off. If it worked, he could take credit. A very smart man was Deng Xiaoping. Well, one after another, those two liberal-minded party secretaries fell. The second, Zhao Ziyang, right at the Tiananmen uh, juncture, and this is why I consider the Tiananmen juncture a turning point in Chinese history. Students came. The April 26th editorial that was the first sign that the government was going to crack down said, this is Dunran, this is turmoil, a dangerous term. You do turmoil, you're going to get it. The government thought that this would quell the students, but it backfired. The next day, more and more students came out, more and more uh, citizens supporting them came out, and it ballooned until in mid-May, it's estimated there were as many as a million people in and around the square. This was a turning point for Mr. Deng. He thought his experiment putting out these two liberal-minded party secretaries had failed, and he had to admit it, and he had to pull back. And within five days, Zhao Ziyang, the second of the liberal-minded ones, was out behind the scenes at first, but later it was clear that it was in those five days he was out. Martial law is declared on May 20th. Troops are mustered, if that's the word, on the outskirts of Beijing, Beijing and then ordered to come in and do the massacre. So, one thing leads to another, and I'm gonna argue that that is, in one sense, was inevitable. As soon as you have a populace who's that discontent and a leader who has to play with how to handle it, something like that will happen. Now, if I may have two more minutes, I want to say something about the inevitability or not of the choice of how to repress the movement. Daniel told us that in 1976, truncheons were used, that's right. They, on the way, the troops on the way into the square used tear gas. That could have been used. A few days later, in the Hong Kong press, someone asked Li Peng whether he couldn't have used shui lung tao, water hoses. Yes, is the answer to all of those questions. Non-lethal methods could have been used, but Mr. Deng decided to use tanks and machine guns in order to kill hundreds or a thousand people. But from a political point of view, to scare the whole country for the next 20, 30 years, right until now, 
Why are so many Chinese people doing their economic thing and being quiescent but not daring to say what they really think? Because it's bad news to try that. So in time, that had a staying power in space as well. There were, I think, Daniel, many more than eight other cities. In the Tenon Papers themselves, we have at least 30. Every provincial capital had sympathetic demonstrations. But as soon as that machine gun and tank power came out, both through time and through place, the lid was slammed back on. I think, Perry, what you just described is very important in the sake of the evolution of events and the eventual turning point. So initially there was, a, of course, orchestrated initiative within the CCP to research political liberalization. And some of the initial, of course, demands of the student movement, they were not initially saying down with the party line. It was just more internal, incremental, and I think this is very important to, to know. And I mean, you already mentioned Sanders, so I took, I took the liberty to bring in the philosopher and the <laughs> economist. Um, I think we also should not forget that, of course, it was a political movement, but it was also rooted in, in economic uh, causes, right? I mean, some of the demands the student addressed also were relating or responding to some of the actually obstacles, or so to say, difficulties of the, the economic reform center? Um, yeah, I think that economic factors certainly did play a role um, uh, with regards to the protest movement. Um, I mean, economic reforms had um, started back in the late 1970s, and they had been quite successful in the sense that they started to unleash China's growth potential. But at the same time, uh, we shouldn't forget that, um, especially during the first decade of reforms, they also led to severe, severe economic distortions, especially uh, in urban areas. And I think, like especially in the, in the 1980s, um, mostly like, people, uh, mainly li uh, people living in the countryside, um, benefited quite a lot from the economic reforms. But in urban areas, uh, it was a bit of a different story. And um, I think many people li living in urban areas were confronted with economic problems such as shortages of everyday goods, um, rising prices, stagnating wages, and even uncertain career prospects, especially with regard to the well-educated and the younger generation. And I think against this backdrop, uh, it's not very surprising um, yeah, that uh, calls to rein in inflation figured quite prominently um, on the protesters' agenda. But another thing that was very closely related uh, to economic reforms was the fact that um, with economic liberalization, there was like lot of, um, lots of opportunities for government officials to line their own pockets. And for this reason, uh, the protesters also were, they were very concerned with regards to um, uh, corruption and also calls to fight against corruption were quite prominently on their agenda. But of course, those were not the only reasons, but I think uh, my colleagues on the panel are more qualified than I to talk about the other reasons or the other deeper causes of the protest movement. Anybody, feel free to, Daniel or Felix, to add to that, of course. I, uh, I, I was, of course, still a boy, but I lived in China in, in between 1985 and 1988. And I realized, uh, or I, I got to feel the spirit which was back there. Uh, every half year, uh, this Beijing seemed to be different again. And 
we all thought in a positive way because it was opening and uh, it was becoming more international. Uh, foreigners were coming in. The people were were able. The first people, at least, were able to uh, to study abroad. Uh, even my my I, I had one cousin who who had the chance to come to Germany at that time, and the same uh, what what you were describing. But on the same hand, um, this. China became so expensive in a very short time, inflation. And I think this is one, maybe maybe it's not the central perp, uh, reason why uh, the protests happened, but I remember in 2011 when, they were, when there were protests in the Arabian countries and uh, all of a sudden people also said, okay, China, there are also maybe protests. I didn't believe in it because in 2011-12, economy in China was pretty stable. And uh, and of course there was unrest, like there's always unrest somehow uh, in China, but not in a in a way that there were masses going out of the street. And that was very different in 1988 and 1987 because there you could see uh, or we could feel uh, that uh, that problems were re economic problems for the people were. Very, uh, very, very strong, or they, they existed. So it was a combination, actually, of, of economic incidents or dissatisfaction, worries, and a political atmosphere, what Perry and also Daniel described. I mean, this, this was a whole generation who was just uh, kind of responding to discussions, debate at the universities, in public. So it was actually a combination, then, of these kind of factors. Um, so I think what is special in the Chinese case, as Perry already mentioned, so we have the turning away from the Cultural Revolution, we have the rhetoric of democracy, we have this period of idealism, and no one knows how far is it going to go. So there's a whole set of expectations, and um, so uh, this is quite different from what happens after 89. Regarding the Mentimeter question, so I mean, actors definitely play a role, and um, we see in Tianjin or in Shanghai with Li, Li Ruihuan or Jiang Zemin, they settled the question without using lethal violence. And Perry already hinted at one point, and this is something that came out of the study of Li Pong's diary, that there seems to have been one particular meeting uh, with Deng Xiaoping where it, has, it seems to have been decided to use this kind of a forceful approach in order to scare uh, the populace for the next 20 years. There's no real proof. It's this type of reading between the lines historiography that is rather uh, still common in China, and this Li Pong diary was sort of the cue in order to go there. But we have other examples, and as I mentioned, over 80 cities, and Beijing is definitely the one where it's been most brutal. But uh, we know very little, for example, about Chengdu, where probably also quite a few dozens of people were were killed, and that's uh, where very little attention has been focused on so far. Perry, you wanted to come in. Did, I would just want to add to that. Did the CCP had a contingency plan for that in any I stage? You in your speech, you'd said eight other cities, but you said 80. So that's my ear's fault, not your fault. I just want to clarify that. On Kristen's pointing out that there were both economic and political reasons for the discontent, I would like to argue that they're very closely intertwined. Probably the major gripe of the students and other people, intellectuals, was what a kind of corruption that's called guandao that happened when the economy changed from a planned economy to an open economy and 
people who had political power, party secretaries in places like factories and mines and so on, could start their own company on the side and make money off of that using state-supplied materials and machinery and resources. If their company on the side hit a jackpot, they get the money. If it didn't, even if it collapsed, the the state unit would take the loss. This, maybe Sandra knows statistics on this, but I don't know the statistics, but I do know that that complaint on that theory was very widespread and it was a gut reason why people were um, angry. Can we imagine the CCP2 had, at that time, have a contingency plan of how to deal with large-scale protest movements? I mean, there were no precedents, really. So were they at all, could they have been prepared for that? I think uh, they could have been prepared because corruption was always a problem in China, at least since uh, the late 70s. Uh, I remember, or I, I read about it, that Deng Xiaoping started his uh, uh, his leadership also was an anti-corruption campaign, which reminds me of how Xi Jinping starts his uh, 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 leadership too. So I think there there was uh, uh, enough experience to deal with it. But um, uh, the difference, of course, was that in, 19, in the nine, end of the 1970s, corruption was about few hundred renminbi. I think in the late 80s it was already around few or was few thousand uh, renminbi corruption. Nowadays we have corruption when we're talking about billions. But uh, so there is a sort of a, a repeat of history when uh, when uh, when China, the Chinese uh, the Communist Party starts an anti-corruption campaign again. Uh, it, that's always how leadership starts. Seems like. I mean, repetition of history actually is a very good point also because uh, what we wanted to do uh, tonight is also, of course, not only looking back, what we tried a little bit now initially making sense of why um, this protest movement has been happening and has been an evolution. It, there have been different economic and political factors coming together, different perceptions within the political leadership. But of course, we also mainly would like to look ahead and talk a little more about what this event has meant then for the, uh, looking back the last 30 years, what how this has changed China. And uh, this is actually a good point to bring in you uh, again for a second question we would like to ask you. If you could kindly, uh, again, if you would like to uh, get on your mobile phones, it's the same website, www.menti.com. The question is, would China now today would have been a more politically liberal country if there have been a compromise, a peaceful solution between the students and the party uh, in, the, in the sake of the protests? We have a, a yes, a slight minority for yes. China would have been a different, more liberal country. Also, Quite um, some people are say are, are voting for it's hard to say. That's of course always hard to say. <laughs> um, oh, the yes is now coming up much clearer. Give it a couple of more seconds. Wow, yeah, courageous. You're making a statement. Not go for the hard for say. Although that's of course, as I said, sometimes differentiation is necessary. But I do think we have a clear result here 
two. So again, the question was, would have China would have been a more liberal, politically also liberal country if there would have been a peaceful a solution, a peaceful end of these protests? It's a yes. And I would like to ask Daniel to comment on the result and also, of course, give us your own opinion on that. All right, thank you very much. Uh, I like dealing in counterfactual, so uh, let's see what I can make of this. Um, all right, I, I would have guessed that um, you probably would have taken a more pessimistic um, approach because, I mean, there's no precedent uh, for this. We're, after all, at the time and now dealing with a dictatorship uh, with a complete hold on power, and the demands of the students were pretty broad. It's not like... Uh, the demands um, at the May 4th movement in the narrow sense, where they wanted three particular ministers to resign, which they got. Uh, so here we had claims that basically wanted a new compact between society um, and uh, government. And I mean, there are of course different ways this could have pursued. I mean, in, in Eastern Europe, we have the round tables. I can't really imagine Deng Xiaoping, Wang Dan, Wang Kaixi sitting at a round table and working out it. Well, that's maybe my lack of imagination, but um, still, um, I, I think it's, it's difficult uh, to imagine. There are, of course, all kinds of political um, theories of how this kind of liberalization could have happened, sort of by um, starting grassroots democracy at the uh, county level or even lower level, at the Xiang level. Uh, and uh, I mean this happened in the late 1980s and then to expand it upwards another theory would have been sort of to allow for different groups within the CCP and then ha to have this develop into a multi-party state but after all there would have been no precedent no clear institution so it would have needed in my opinion a clear charismatic leader who kept the whole thing together and had a clear institutional idea of how things should happen and if something was not working well at the time, it was the institutions. You had sort of a council of elders um, who did the final decision on the Tiananmen uh, massacre and who only retreated afterwards. So there was no clear rule of succession. In the end, um, up until Xi Jinping, it still was Deng Xiaoping who selected his successors. So I would be a little more skeptical, I guess, than most of the audience, although I would have hoped for this particular outcome. But I guess those who voted for no would have also looked into Chinese history because there are also many um, examples where sort of if one ruling power retreats what you get is factionalism especially at a local level you get warlord periods in some regions healthy more healthy developments in others so it's very hard to tell and um, yeah I think it's a it's a good question to start a debate let's see what the others think I mean, that's, that, that's also definitely not I mean as you already indicated I mean the official narrative is of course some of maybe some of would think or say, of course, that's that was not a terribly it was a terrible so solution actually, but it, it was necessary to stabilize the country. We had no institutions in place. We had to bring it under control. So actually, that what I mean that's ve that's very much part of the official narrative, right? They would never subscribe or, of course, to any kind of these argumentations. I saw Perry and Felix both kind of wanting to react to that or. The official narrative, unofficially transmitted, often says to, how could these young people, Chiling, MA student in psychology, or Kaishi, who is barely 19 years old, if they took over the government, it would be chaos. Therefore, you need us, because, you know, après woman, the deluge, I guess. Um, 
I think that's, that's political rhetoric. Who knows what would have happened? Daniel's very wise to say, we don't know, so let's just do a counterfactual. The point I want to make is that inside the bureaucracies, there were a lot of people who I'm pretty confident would have kept doing their jobs under a more open liberal leadership. The People's Daily had reporters in the square marching up and down with the banners that said things like, don't force us to lie. And it isn't true that if, I can't promise about the future, but I find it very hard to imagine that if the leadership had stepped down and a new one had taken over, that the entire bureaucracies would everywhere would collapse and there would be utter chaos. That said, I think, yes, chaos would be a possible outcome and still might be. I don't accept the argument of the Communist Party of China that you have to stick with us all the way, all the time, or else there will be chaos. That might be true, but if you stick with them, you're just postponing the time when an eventual change is going to have to come. In a way, then, by the way, sorry, we're right in the middle of the event, but is the translation working? Can I see a kind of nod, or it's, it's okay? For the translators, are we doing okay? I make sure we're not going faster. Than that, okay, seems everybody's kind of who needing translation is happy. Okay, that's good to know. Super, um, right, I mean, Perry, you already mentioned that. I mean, but the way the Communist Party, of course, presented it later on to, this, to the people was on the one inside stability. But the way I, I looked at it as in Senator, we've talked about this also, it was a kind of deal, right? It was, we take care of stability and growth and you, the people, in return, give up any political ambitions or right to participate. I mean, looking back, you could also argue that the, this kind of deal, if you would call it a deal, worked, right, for, for a majority of the Chinese people. I don't know, Senator, but yeah, people don't get to participate. So we, the government, take care of yeah. stability and growth, and you, the people, stop having any political ambitions to, to shape politics right. or to participate, right? That was the Mao Zedong deal. just about killed the ideals of, China, of Chinese socialism with his great leap forward famine and his cultural revolution. And the populace was exhausted and disillusioned in the years after he died. Deng comes along and says, let's try again. Let's have a reform system. As Felix was pointing out, in the late 80s, there was a pretty nice atmosphere in Beijing. People were, in China in general, fairly optimistic. We can make this happen again. Then, boom. The Tiananmen Massacre comes, and absolutely those ideals, original ideals of serve the people and other ideals of socialism in China were empty, an empty shell game. You still have to play the language game in order to get something done, but nobody, I would argue, even the leaders, really believe it. It's empty. Yet Chinese culture depends on a moral ideology. This goes back to what we roughly call Confucianism how to be a good person, the five relations, that's deep in Chinese culture. Chinese people want that. So with the official ideology totally bankrupt, they have to turn somewhere else. And we've seen since the massacre, the sprouting of religions of various kinds. 
Deng Xiaoping's not stupid. He wants to offer something to the people to believe in, to replace the legitimacy that he knows his government has lost. He offered two things. One is money making. Yeah, you shut up about ideology, about ideals, exactly. about politics, yeah. but go make money. And the other is a narrow-minded kind of nationalism. In American English, we use the word jingoist for this that is stoked all the way along. Why does the government want us, the Chinese people, to hate Taiwan, hate the Dalai Lama, hate Japan? Why are these? It's not because they really want to hate these places. It's to stoke nationalism in the populace at home to come behind us, the leaders. And the, the Olympics and things like that are another good example of it. So money-making and nationalism are supposed to replace the original moral ideals that were in Chinese culture. And unfortunately, it's, it's worked. Exactly. I mean, lot. looking bad, couldn't we argue that, uh, Sarah, and I would like to address that to you, uh, especially the first kind of threat of arguments. Uh, so we offer you, you can get rich, focus on your personal life, focus on the economics. Didn't that work? I think that uh, at least on a very superficial level, uh, this deal or this social contract has been successful until now. Um, at least in the sense that, I mean, the government um, managed to maintain high growth rates that translated into rising living standards for most people. So most people have been relatively happy with the government's performance, I would say. And at least, I mean, they have refrained from openly asking for uh, increased political rights or uh, stronger civil liberties or li civil liberties at all. But I think, I mean, of course, we also need to be aware of the fact that the problem with this so-called performance-based legitimacy is that it has always made the regime extremely vulnerable to economic shocks. And this, um, as Perry was just pointing out, is of course also one of the reasons um, why the, um, the Chinese government has also been like, very ambitious when it comes to like, um, yeah, increasing nationalistic feelings of the Chinese populace. But I think um, there is also one thing that, I mean, things are actually getting more complicated for the Chinese government. And this is because um, I think during the so-called period of catch-up development, it was still relatively easy for the government to maintain high growth rates. But now this period is basically over, and I think it already ended about maybe 10 years ago, maybe about the time uh, when the global financial crisis um, uh, also struck China's economy. So now I think... Um, um, given the fact that the Chinese economy is under a lot of pressure due to structural change, such as um, rising labor costs, a shrinking labor, a labor force, um, decreasing investment efficiency, and so on and so forth. And at the same time, we also have those increasing political as well as economic tensions between China and the US. There is a much higher risk that there will be an economic shock in China. And I think, I mean, we also talked about this earlier, I think um, to a certain extent, man, man, uh, one could actually say that uh, the fact um, that we've been witnessing this uh, increasing degree of political repression, uh, at least ever since uh, Xi Jinping came to power, can to a certain degree uh, be, be explained by the fact that the government, of course, is very well aware of the fact that they are under increasing economic pressure and they want to make sure that they really can like, nip in the butt uh, any potential for large-scale protests. 
Felix, you just returned from China. How is this perceived among, I mean, the average Chinese is hard to say, but maybe let's take the urban middle class who have been, who have gained a lot in the last 30 years. How do they perceive the, the current government? Are they still doing a good job? Are they still happy, basically, or let's say not terribly dissatisfied? I would like to add two more things in advance before answering this question. Uh, uh, two things. Uh, I, the the path the uh, to, to uh, the path of reforms in 1988 and 1989 was pretty much fixed. I mean, there was, of course, there was internal struggle, which direction or how fast the reform should go, but pretty much the open policy was uh, Deng Xiaoping's doc doctrine, and uh, the path was made, and it was not planned. The Tiananmen uh, uh, massacre and the crackdown. And uh, I, so that's why I would even go faster to this question uh, you were asking to the audience. Uh, I think China would be also economically even further nowadays if there hadn't been this crackdown. Because I remember my father back then was uh, working for Volkswagen. He brought uh, Volkswagen to China and the crackdown of 1989 and of course all the foreign investors back then who entered the Chinese market back then were all very important for the Chinese government. After the crackdown they took them, some of them took only maybe a few months, but others took several years to get back to the Chinese market. And I think if there hadn't been this crackdown, uh, probably uh, the Chinese economy would be even more successful than it is nowadays. So I don't see this um, question so much. Uh, if there hadn't been this crackdown, maybe China wouldn't be in this economic stage. It's I mean, it's a theory, it's hard to predict, but I just remember what was back then, the atmosphere. A lot of foreign investors didn't dare to go back to China for several years, and it only took, it took until Deng Xiaoping went to, to Shenzhen to the southern trip, until the, uh, the foreign investment getting or started again in a higher degree. Uh, to your question about how so, uh, Chinese society nowadays... Let's uh, take the urban middle class. I mean, they yes. gained so much, you could argue. Um, I think nowadays, uh, thanks to the internet, if somebody is interested in to know what happened in 1989, they can get this information. And even, even there is censorship or that they delete uh, postings, but still, if people are interested, if they want to know what's happening, e even in Chinese internet, you get the information. I think what the problem nowadays is um, that, and I think the Chinese censorship is, has uh, become smarter too in this point, um, is how much false information or misleading information or how discussions are getting turned into a spe specific direction. There are these influences, the Communist Party influences, who try to influence all kinds of debates. And this is what I also, uh, I haven't checked so much this for this year, but several, for a few years ago, I, you could see on Weibo, even on, on Weixin, that there were debates, but they're getting very fast into a very strange direction which is in favor of the Communist Party and which is anti-Western liberalization. So this is, I think, the from the Communist Party's point of view, a smarter way to influence a debate and 
probably it's even more effective than just erase these postings, what used to be the case uh, the 25 years before the, or the 20 years before the internet net became so big in China. So that would also basically support this, the, the, the second line of thinking that Perry described, which was offered, and Daniel described that before this nationalist kind of uh, in line with CCP, also not only economically, but also politically kind of offering a better solution, which might chi take China a lot farther than the US or any, any uh, liberal democ democratic system, right? On the middle class problem, I, I think we need to appreciate what I call the, a split mentality, especially among the middle class. In order to be safe politically, you don't want to confront the government, so you go along, you say the right things, you work in your work unit and uh, appear to be thriving. At another level, you uh, aren't. And for an example, uh, I have a lot of students at the University of California who come from China and they're from this middle class and they won't talk in class about anything that's politically sensitive because they're afraid that others of their Chinese friends in the in the in the classroom might send a little report in. So they're very careful in public. Sometimes they come to my office to to talk about the Tiananmen events and so on. So at, at one level, they're, they're, they're obeying and being very careful to obey. And yet, the parents have sent them to California to come to, to, to get their educations. There's a lot of money in the Los Angeles area that's probably corrupt money, but from Chinese people hiding their money. So you've got this middle class that at one level is towing the line, and at another level is going the other direction. And I think it's pretty pervasive. And actually a more mixed picture, I mean, alongside what we've just been discussing, that roughly looking back, a large part of Chinese society seemed to at least have accepted, or kind of, of course, some of them maybe also went into an inner retreat, some went into exile uh, concerning the events that happened. But I mean, from, from the CCP point of view, so far, as you have been all indicating, at least they managed to quell uh, additional protest movement. They managed to keep dissatisfaction at a at a, a at a certain level, and this brings me actually nicely to a final uh, question. We would like um, to ask you again, the audience, and then also the panelists, looking now a little further into the future of. Whether or not, and again, it's the same code, the same website, whether or not such a large-scale protest movement in several cities with various social groups involved could happen again in the next five to seven years. Um, and I would again invite you to vote. And it's now a yes or no coming up pretty clearly. We also have, of course, the hard to say option seems to be pretty obvious that many of you or most of you are already there to say believe this is not going to happen in the next five to seven years, such a large-scale protest movement as we have seen 30 years ago. 
Yeah, this is to my mind now pretty clear. And wow, you're courageous in making clear yes or no statements. You're an extraordinary audience, super. And given the hot weather, super. Daniel, I would like to ask you to comment on that again. No, such a large-scale protest movement will not happen again in the next five to seven years, is what our audience believes. Uh, well, historians usually are backward-looking prophets, but I'll do my best again to look to the, the future. I mean, there are certain things that you can't expect. There are structural factors and there are factors you can't perceive of. What would happen if Xi Jinping died in two years? It shouldn't happen. I'm not saying this, but he sort of laid the axe to the roots of many institutions that sort of governed uh, the succession rules and other things. And so this would be something where I could imagine a stronger um, protests emerging, but otherwise, I mean, the Chinese Communist Party has invested so much in security equipment, in so many uh, sort of in stabi uh, stability uh, measures. It's so pervasive that I think it's become much more difficult uh, sort of uh, to organize uh, such thing. If you imagine how these things happened in, in the 80s, you just went there, you just uh, protested, and nowadays it's uh, completely out of the question that something like this would happen. But still, um, I mean, if certain core interests like private property, certain vested interests, certain political succession rules are uh, in question, I mean, this is something where I think um, inner party splits are possible. Everything else, societal dimensions, I think it's very, very hard to predict. But uh, sort of, sorry for being evasive, maybe someone else has uh, a stronger opinion on that. We have philosophers, prophets, economists, historians, translators, language specialists who would like to add to what Daniel State just said to contradict or to offer additional evidence, any of you. Felix, go ahead. Well, uh, since, I'm, since I'm back in Germany, I actually got several times a question, where is China in, in the future? Where is China going? And I... Uh, I sort of an answer to myself. I say, well, I think I can predict where China is in two years or maybe still in five years. I don't know where China is in 10 years. Where is it and in two to five years then? I would say so far. And as I mentioned at the beginning, I think it has a lot a lot to do with economy. Uh, so far, the Communist Party gets its leadership, uh, the, its legitimation for the leadership uh, as a promise that the country is still, the economy is still growing. People ask that more people will get wealthy uh, prosperity. And, and I think for the next two, three, five, two to five years, uh, the government, the Communist Party, still has enough um, or, or measurements to, to keep this growing or that the economy is still growing. Maybe it's get, it, it is getting harder. But there is still a lot of potential because so far there's still around 400 million people who are still not uh, middle class. And uh, there are still, even it seems like for us, okay, there are not enough skyscrapers, there are enough apartment buildings and there are enough streets, but there is still a lot of potential for this. And I mean, the Silk Road and uh, these are other big projects and Made in China 2025, these are other big major projects where there is this promise, okay, people, uh, you can, um, uh, the, 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 the growing of the economy is, is, is uh, is continue, c continuing. 
why I'm saying I don't know about in 10 years, um, because it is easy for an economy to, from an underdeveloped country to become a, 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 how do you say, Schwellenland, a, Emerging country. Emerging country. And because you just build factories and you build streets and then you create jobs. It is much harder, and this is a goal what the communist leadership has now, to, to from an emerging country to become a, a, a really high technology country. Because it is much more complicated. You need good education. Uh, you need uh, much more and much more difficult infrastructure programs than just streets. And this is the question if this, uh, if the Communist Party is able to achieve this. I mean, so far it seems like, but of course, the trade war with the US and uh, the struggling also with a lot of other countries is making this goal, uh, this, uh, to achieve this goal makes it much harder. So I don't know how China, what China's economy will be like in 10 years. And maybe you're right um, that you're saying it's getting more complicated to organize protests and uh, seeing so many uh, surveillance cameras and stuff. I think it is uh, very hard to organize something. But on the other hand, I'm quite optimistic in this sense that there are a lot of new ways to create protests. And uh, same as here, uh, you see so much climate protest is organized through the internet or through diff other channels uh, than 10 years or 20 years. This is the same for China. So I'm quite optimistic that if change is wanted by the majority, this will, uh, they will manage to organize it. Okay, first of all, you said you're optimistic that two to five years, I don't want to nail you down on that, but you're optimistic there's some economic growth potential. Sandra doesn't seem to agree with that. I think that I have a slightly uh, more pessimistic view with regard to uh, the Chinese economy. I mean, of course, I, I do agree with you that the Chinese economy still has a whole lot of growth potential. But um, as you were saying yourself, I think um, the, the main challenge is that um, China has already reached the status of a high middle income country. So um, catch up development is over and China's government has basically already reaped all the low hanging fruits. And now development is becoming much more difficult. And this is not something that will only start in about like 10 years from now, but it has actually already started 10 years ago. And this is the reason why we have seen that uh, investment has, um, investment efficiency has been declining really rapidly ever since the big stimulus program that the government came up with uh, in 2009 in reaction to the global financial crisis. So I think that um, China's economy is already under a whole lot of pressure and now with the trade war that is escalating uh, like uh, to an extent that we wouldn't have imagined probably only a couple of months ago, I think, I mean, it's really under a whole lot of pressure and I think the problem is, I mean, the, there is a rising risk of a severe economic uh, shock that China's economy might have to experience. And um, the thing is that, I mean, of course, a whole lot of Chinese people are understanding the trade war that the U.S. is fighting against China as an attempt to block China's rise. So uh, in this, I mean, if, in, in these circumstances, if China's economy really were to experience a shock, I think it would be very easy for the government to blame it on the U.S. and to appeal to the nationalistic feelings of the Chinese populace. So I think I could actually imagine large-scale protests 
protest movements taking place, but that those would be very different from what we saw in 1989. Um, because, I mean, in the sense that they would probably, or they, they might be amplified by the government in an effort to try and bolster its legitimacy in the event of an economic crisis that would break down the social contract that has stabilized the regime for the last 40 years. Perry, you have the longest view. What is your perspective on that? We've talked about a lot, many aspects of what's going to happen in China's future, and I don't have a crystal ball and can't really responsibly try to answer that. I want to go to the question that's actually put on the screen of will we likely see Tiananmen-style demonstrations on the streets in China in the next five to seven years? And I would say no. And for the reason, well, all three of you mentioned it, but Daniel originally, that the spending on repression of that kind of thing is much greater and much more sophisticated now than it was in the 1980s. It was about 10 years ago that a fact got bandied around in intellectual circles in China a lot that, and I presume it's true, although I'm not an economist, that the budget for internal security called Weiwen, maintaining stability, which was a phrase that was brought up to answer the Weichuan supporting rights movement that was in society. The budget for Weiwen had already exceeded the national defense budget. Be that as it may, it's extremely broad and very minute in its attentions. Um, if you get on the internet and denounce Xi Jinping and say he's a a fat Winnie the Pooh or something, you'll get away with that. If you start a group that meets about that, then you will be targeted. And when the state security people aim at a group, they always try to identify the leader. And they take the leader and they invite her or him to tea, is the euphemism for having a little bit of a political lesson. Wouldn't it be better for your own future if you didn't do this kind of thing? And have you thought about your parents or your children or whatever it is? If drinking tea doesn't work, then you get actual threats to your job or to your children's education. And if things like that don't work, you get detained and you go to a detention center, you might get sent to prison. This is a spectrum of punishments. But people see it. They know that this is what you're getting into if you become the leader of anything. About, what, 10 or 15 years ago in the citizens' support movement, it became common to make organizations that had no leader. For example, in what it was 2003, I think it was 2002, the liberal editors of the Nanfang Dushibao, the Southern uh, Metropolitan News, it was called, which was a semi-free, semi-open uh, newspaper that was publishing all kinds of scandals and corruption and things that people were really interested in. The editors got sacked all of a sudden by rulings from above. The reporters below were indignant, but they didn't form an organization. They each wrote an individual letter and got it published. And when people, when the police came and said, who's organizing you? Nobody. We don't have an organization. It's so tight that even courageous people like newspaper reporters who want to be muckrakers 
bow to it and become atomized. So it, it's pretty unthinkable to me that something could get organized as well as the Beijing movements in 1989 were. They were very well organized. I was living in Beijing at the time and saw the students, how they marched, and they were in such order and so on, that the organization can't be there. But that's not to gainsay what Felix and Sandra said about the economy being crucial. You have a society now where the middle is all sucked out. There are no free churches, free clubs, free uh, eleemosynary organizations, all these in middle-level things that Chinese society used to have and that German society has have been swept out. All you have is the ruling structure and the atomized people below. Can there be some kind of upheaval? Yeah, I think, and I think the two of you are right that it's probably an economic downturn of some kind that might trigger this before anything else. But that's a bit frightening, because if you have this atomized populace suddenly very angry about a, an economy that's turned south, it could be not a street demonstration, but a kind of an explosion, a fairly frightening thing. So a clear, a clear verdict? I mean, basically, you all seem to be, to, to one or the other extent, to be aligned with the audience on that uh, question. No, if or only if we would have seen a major, or see a major economic crisis. Wow. I mean, with the help of the panelists and also with the help of you all, we covered quite some ground. We started in the 17th century. We looked at Kangxi. We talked about Huawei and 5G. And I, I probably, it's not only my feeling that I, I sense we barely scratched the surface. We hopefully did touch upon some of the aspects which are important for this topic, which have been important for you, for um, the panelists. The good news is this is only one event in a series of events, which is actually also happening in Berlin. So more opportunity to engage, more opportunity for you to stay on um, and engage with the panelists. But before we do that, open the doors to hopefully some cooler air outside. I would like to thank, first of all, our panelists for being so engaging, referring to each other, and to answer, I think, most of the questions we've heard. Thank you very much, Daniel, Perry, Sandra, Felix. And finally, again, I would like to thank you, the audience. Very supportive, very engaging. So please do stay on for a glass of wine or water and a snack. And keep caring about China. Keep caring about the Chinese people and the world in general. And have a very good evening and a very good week. Thank you very much. You have been listening to Merrick's Experts, the podcast from the Makato Institute for China Studies in Berlin. If you want to learn more about our work, please visit us at merricks.org.